Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We're welcoming back Scott McFarlane, who is now the congressional correspondent for CBS News. So first of all, Scott, congratulations on the new job. Thank you. I'm honored to be at CBS News, but equally honored to be with you, Charlie. Well, I appreciate you. You have been a very, very, very busy guy because you've been covering the aftermath of the attack on the Capitol and uh, your your Twitter feed has become kind of the the, the, the must bookmark about the, the process, you know, the, the progress of the prosecution of the defendants arrested in, in connection with the attack. So this is, uh, it's gotta be kind of consuming just to keep track of it all. Unambiguously, it's the largest criminal investigation in U.S. history. Let's try to wrap your mind around that for a moment. We have 730 defendants so far. And the tricky thing is, even the smallest cases, the low-level cases, the misdemeanors, can have a twist or have a provocative statement by the defendant or a provocative accusation by the feds. So you really have to read every one of them. And there are hundreds more likely to come. Well, I I know that people are hoping that we're going to spend most of the podcast talking about uh, the story about Rudy Giuliani being a contestant on The Masked Singer. But this seems all hoping for that, Charlie. We all are. Before we started, I confess to you, Scott, that when I first saw that on social media, that I, I I honestly thought it was a parody. I thought it was a spoof. It, it actually took me an hour to go back and realize, no, really, this actually happened. Rudy Giuliani, who is at the center of all the coup attempts and everything, apparently he had a line, was actually a contestant on The Masked Singer. And, and this is not a parody. This is actually a true thing. So it reminds I, you of how many years we've gone through now where you wake up in the morning and you try to decipher, was that a real thing that happened overnight? Or is that somebody's joke about what happened overnight? Well, that, that's right. And especially with Rudy, the, the, the line between parody and reality is, is so strange. I, I actually wrote about it yesterday. I, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I wrote something called, you know, the, the Barr-Pence line, you know, that there was a line beyond which not even Bill Barr would go, not even Mike Pence would go. And weirdly enough, there was a line beyond which, beyond which <laughs> Giuliani wouldn't go, that he's the, I mean, this is this is how weird things are that you know, when they were proposing using the military to seize all the voting machines, it's Rudy Giuliani who is the voice of reason. He's the grown up in the room saying, don't do it. It's like, wow, how do you and, and now he's he's a contestant on the masked singer. I, but this is this is the challenge. I mean, you have we have to navigate covering this unprecedented prosecution. The politics of the moment where the January 6th remains a political wedge issue, and we got to work backward and figure out all the things that happened between November 3rd, 2020 yeah. and January 20, 2021. There's a lot there. and There's only almost not enough of us to dig. No, there, there's a lot there. And in, in every single day, uh, you know, just before we began talking, uh, I'm reading the Washington Post story about the people who wanted to use the, uh, the NSA to prove that the election was stolen. We're getting more information about uh, uh, memos that had been circulated as early as November to people in, say, my home state of Wisconsin about how to, how to steal the election. I'll, I'll tell you one of the other things that that I, I probably just stumbled across that line myself. It's it's the it's the, the calibrating reacting to this like what a bunch of clowns versus n- no, this was really serious. You know what I mean? That at a certain point you can get fixated on the four seasons, uh, you know, landscaping company things and the, the crazy nutty things of Sidney Powell. But this thing was very real um, and and it continues to be very, very real. I mean, it's the 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 gra- there are there's a huge cohort out there of people who I don't think have grasped how grave this was. See, this is the challenge. 
the January 6th committee has. It has this fire hose that's been turned on. Yeah. Hundreds of interviews, an untold pile of paper, and inside, possibly, things about the NSA, about the Department of Defense, about the collection of voting machines, about all of the things we've been reading about and reporting about over the past few months. And they've got to synthesize all this. They have to organize it and prepare it to show the American public. And, Charlie, they've got to do it quickly. By by most standards, they've got to get it done by summer or fall. And I don't know how they navigate that. And I've been asking them. And they say, we've got talented people here. We're going to make it happen. So you've also been tracking all of the, the criminal prosecutions and uh What are there about uh, 730 people who have been charged, but only about 10 percent of them are being held in pretrial detention. And obviously they're all trying to get out. So let's put this in context of what's happened over the last few days on Saturday night. uh, The former president uh, very clearly, very explicitly, very unsubtly dangled the possibility of pardons for anyone who had attacked the Capitol. And then he doubled down on this. I believe this was I don't know, is this a. I'm not going to try to distinguish whether this was Newsmax or OAN or some of these other flaky outlets, but he sits down for a television interview and he doubles down on the whole question of pardoning the people who attacked the Capitol, including uh, his reaction to even Lindsey Graham. After all of these years of fluffing, even Lindsey Graham, once again, you know, has located at least one vertebrate and saying that was inappropriate. So he's asked about it last night and he doubles down. You talked about the potential, if it's appropriate, of pardoning some of the January Sixers. Lindsey Graham said a couple days later he thinks that's inappropriate. What do you think? Well, Lindsey Graham's wrong. I mean, Lindsey's a nice guy, but he's a rhino. Lindsey's wrong. And some of these people are not guilty. Many of these people are not guilty. What they've done to to these, and in many cases, patriots, patriots, they're soldiers, they're policemen, What they've done to them compared to what they've done to the other side, you know, you have to have equal justice. And this isn't equal. So I would absolutely be prepared. And Lindsey Graham doesn't know what the hell he's talking about if he says that. Some of them are being treated very unfairly. Yeah, I would absolutely give them a pardon. Okay, so Scott, tell me about how that plays out. It's going to have a transcendent impact on the criminal prosecution. Transcendent. In lots of different ways. Hmm. But first of all, At this moment, the Justice Department's engaged in plea discussions in any number of January 6th criminal cases, including some of the higher level cases, the defendants accused of conspiracy or assaulting police. You could characterize the talk of pardons as a complication for those plea discussions. But what's more, we're also at this stage where by the dozen, some of the lower level and mid-level defendants are going to judges at sentencing to ask for leniency. And a component of that has been saying either Joe Biden is the rightfully lawfully elected president or I was wrong to follow the lies about the Hmm. election or wrong to follow Trump. Now, are defendants going to be less likely to say that, worried they might compromise their future pardons? It's a variable inside a criminal case that's so important. So it's a potential problem, not just for the prosecutors, but to a degree could be a problem for some of those defendants who may not get the leniency they want. Well, also, this has become now this uh, this meme slash narrative on the right that uh, the the rioters, the insurrectionists are being treated very, very badly. They're being held under terrible conditions. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you pointed out that only about 10 percent are actually being held in pretrial detention. Uh, What is the status of most of the cases and how long is this going to go on? So you have about 
70, 80 defendants total in pretrial detention, about half of whom are in the Washington, D.C. jail, which even by jail standards has a reputation of being a tough place to serve time. They've been in pretrial detention quite a while, if you think about it. Some of them were arrested shortly after January 6th, and we're in February 2022. So who Um, are they? Are are they distinguished by what they did, the the severity of the charges against them? These are not the the, the casual tourists who are walking through the, the halls? They're distinguished by what they are accused of doing or what they've done in the past. You have some number of the pre-trial detained defendants who have criminal histories. Um, and they may have been, you know, had one or two strikes against them already, and they're accused of swinging the bat a third time. Or you've got defendants who are accused of the highest level crimes here, you know, assaulting police with weaponry, um, conspiracy, you know, plotting and planning to attack America. Um, they were so high level that the judge deemed they were a danger to release or they were a risk to flee. In fact, when we see, you know, Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, Mm -hmm. he's been trying to get himself transferred back home to Texas. The judge yesterday ordered, no, you're going to go to Washington, D.C. to serve time in pretrial detention. And the argument the prosecutors made there is that he's a danger. He has the ability to tamper with witnesses because he's an influential member of the Oath Keepers. He's the founder. What's more, they thought he was a a flight risk because he's so well-resourced. So judges are saying, are you a flight risk or are you dangerous? And if you don't don't pass those two tests, you're likely to be held in pretrial detention. But there's another twist, Charlie. The problem here is that the court is backlogged. The court is under restrictions because of COVID. Mm. The court's been under restrictions from COVID for two years now. So there are cases from 2020 they still got to get to And they've got this growing line of 2021 defendants, including everybody from January 6th, going through the same courthouse in Washington, D.C. To put it more simply, trial dates are hard to come by and they aren't coming soon. So the obviously the the most pressing question is, is is this investigation proceeding upward? It was will go beyond just the schmoes that went into the Capitol. Now, obviously, it was a rather dramatic moment. Tell me whether you agree or not. When when um, Stuart Rhodes and the other Oath Keepers were charged with seditious conspiracy, what is your sense about that? That that was a significant escalation of the prosecution involving yeah. January sixth. Right? Would, would you characterize it that way? Yeah, I, w- I would certainly characterize it that way. And federal prosecutions tend to move upward. You yeah. start with the lower rung defendants. You try to flip them, have them cooperate to speak to the agents. And then you move on to you know, higher tier defendants. And this has moved that way, generally speaking. And we ha- there is one trial on the books this month. There's one. The last day of the month, a defendant named Guy Reffitt is going on trial here in D.C. He's from Texas. He's accused of having a gun on his person amid the mob, one of the few charged with that. Mm -hmm. So he's a relatively high-level defendant in and of himself. That being said, the 200 or so plea agreements we've seen so far are almost exclusively those misdemeanor, low-level defendants who have not been accused of damage, who have not been accused of assault January 6th. What's still to come are these accused conspirators, seditious conspirators and other conspirators who were accused of coming here on January 6th, the plot and a plan. Those cases are still to come. And to a degree, the feds have built a a foundation by closing out these lower level cases and getting cooperation from those defendants. 
Well, the seditious conspiracy is a very rarely charged crime, right? I mean, you'd have to go back to the That's World right. War One era to find anyone charged under seditious conspiracy. Do you have any insight into what they were thinking, why they decided to dust off that particular charge and, and what we should read into that? The only indications I'm getting are from the charging documents and the court filings themselves. Though that's not a bad thing to, to, to read to get a good indication. And what the prosecutors said, Stuart Rhodes, is in their words, he was hatching a plan to attack the U.S. Congress. He was hatching a plan to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power. This is a rare charge because that's a particularly rare accusation. And it's clear to me, 730 defendants into this criminal case that's the epicenter. That's mm -hmm. the heart or the focal point of a sweeping, enormous case where every defendant is important to the prosecutors. That's clearly the focal point right now is Stuart Rhodes and the nearly dozen other defendants charged with seditious conspiracy. So is he the target or is he the means to somebody else? Following up on this, is does this go higher or are we just going to be, is, is, he, is he the end point? If somebody answers that question, please let me know what they tell you. <laughs> and, and let me know first, okay. Charlie, what they tell you. Uh, that's, th that, that's critical. That's a critical mass issue. I would say that's one of the most important rhetorical questions that exists right now. I, I, I was struck early in this process when the first dozen or so Oath Keepers were charged with conspiracy, not seditious conspiracy, conspiracy, still a remarkably high-level charge. And the feds flipped a series of them, multiple accused Oath Keepers. And I was wondering... Well, who are you flipping the mm -hmm. highest level defendant to get? And I never really got a satisfactory answer to that. But then comes Stuart Rhodes. Mm. Then Stuart Rhodes is charged. And though they haven't been explicit that there was cooperation from other accused Oath Keepers in making that case, they didn't preclude that possibility either. So do you, if, if Stuart Rhodes' you know, case moves in a certain direction that indicates cooperation, if that were to happen, if, that would be a good time to raise the question again. You know, you you use the uh, the term witness tampering to uh, you know to explain why Stuart Rhodes is being kept in pretrial detention, and I think the you know part of this whole uh, story that makes your head explode somewhat, at least makes my head explode a little bit, is that uh, you know obviously you don't want uh, Stuart Rhodes to be able to engage in witness tampering, and yet in broad daylight, in real time, on videotape, there is the former president. It, it, you know, how else do you interpret? his dangling of pardons other than an attempt to tamper with witnesses. And he's done this before, and he's done it successfully. I mean, I think you can argue, certainly the Mueller report argued that he engaged in obstruction of justice, and that that obstruction of justice actually worked for him, and he thinks that this will work for him again. It's, it complicates things for lots of different parties in this, and it complicates things from Trump supporters as well. As I mentioned earlier, you do have Trump supporters people who were charged on January 6th, who want the mercy of the court from January 6th, who, if they believe pardons are coming, may yeah. be less effective at getting the, the leniency they want when they face the judge. But put, put that aside for a moment. Yeah. You talk about pardons, does that complicate what the House January 6th committee is doing? Or does that simplify what the House January 6th committee is doing? And I've been, I've been directing that hmm. question to every member of the committee I find. Interesting. When Trump talks pardons, when Trump issues a written statement Sunday night that uses the phrase overturn the election in Mike Pence, does that give up the game or does that put, add yet another variable to what the committee's doing? And the committee has been noncommittal in answering that question. I just think it opens that fire hose we described earlier wider. 
more for them to digest, synthesize, and prepare to show the American public. So you actually talked with uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin earlier this this week, and um, in your in your conversation, he said that Trump said the criminal part out loud with the statement that uh, yeah. uh, Pence could have overturned the election. So he seemed to be thinking that this helps us. That this this gives us more ammunition. He's been particularly bullish on some of the things that you know, he says the committee has found. Um, I just I'm skeptical about the timetable for the committee to release what it's found yeah. for the reasons I've mentioned, because there's just so much. You know, we've heard a timetable a few weeks ago of February primetime hearings of this that. committee for, the, for America to see. Then it slid to March um, when the chairman spoke with my colleagues at Face the Nation. And then Congressman Raskin talked about April. And it's a very finite period of time for the schedule to have changed so much. This is just a matter of weeks. We've moved from February to April. I'm not sure where it moves next. Yeah, that's uh, the the public hearings uh, in April. It strikes me as about the latest they could possibly do. So when you were talking with Jamie Raskin, you talked about um, the status of Ivanka, uh, who's expected to be called to be interviewed this week by the committee. Uh, He obviously wasn't, he was, you know, closed mouthed about the the details or dates or times. So uh, what what did he tell you about, uh, you know, this and how Trump's executive privilege claims are playing out? Uh, he believes that you know, if, the, if the court's not going to give Donald Trump executive privilege, who else is who else has got a meritorious argument for executive privilege on this issue uh, about Ivanka Trump? You know, the, the, the voluntary dates suggested by the committee for her to appear and speak were today um, or tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, we've seen no indication there's movement on that front, but we can't preclude it either. Um, Congressman Raskin, I think, was, when he talks about you know, the possibility of Ivanka Trump coming, is speaking more aspirationally, saying he expects everyone called to come. Um, that has not borne it out to be true just yet, um, Steve Bannon and Mark Meadows. But perhaps he senses a moment of new leverage or new recognition of the importance of what the committee is doing. Or perhaps he is just speaking aspirationally and hoping that everybody called will eventually, mm-hmm. eventually come. So what we do know happened, though, was the committee interviewed Mike Pence's top aides, uh, Mark Shorter, who was his chief of staff, and uh, Greg Jacobs. But tell me, I mean, that seems like a, a significant line of, of inquiry to, to talk about is, is what is Pence World doing? I mean, Mark Short, I think, has made it very, very clear that he's like done with, you know, the Trump insurrection and, and, the, and the big lies. We don't know whether Pence himself is going to testify. He's obviously got a lot of reasons not to want to do it. But is your sense that with the exception of Pence himself, that Pence world is cooperating with this committee? We've been asking if this is a sequencing, yeah. a movement toward Mike Pence. And again, we're not getting the firmest of answers, but you can see the drumbeat. You can see the, the, the train moving down the tracks as they get closer and closer to inner circles. But what I, I found most noteworthy on this is that in its letter to Ivanka Trump, the House January 6th committee specifically said it wants to know what she heard on her end of the phone call in the Oval Office the morning yeah. of January 6th between Trump and Pence. They want to know, um, in, perhaps in granular detail, what was said to Mike Pence in the 11th hour. And there's obviously somebody else who can answer that question <laughs> besides Ivanka Trump, the, the recipient of the phone call. Yeah, obviously, though, um, they're not going to uh, 
probably file, you know, any criminal contempt charges, even if they subpoenaed her and she refused to do it. By the way, what is the status? And this is a little bit of a digression. What is the status of some of the the uh, criminal referrals? Uh, they moved quickly. The Department of Justice moved quickly with Steve Bannon. There's a couple of others hanging out. There's at least one, right? Didn't I'm glad they not, you asked. Yeah. Uh, what's Steve happening? Bannon is the, is the one who has been charged. The only one. That's right. Yeah. The only one who's been charged after a referral for contempt of Congress, specifically now charged with contempt of Congress. His trial is set for July, late July into August. Yeah. Now, that is late in the game for the House January 6th committee, but really they're beyond the point where they're going to get information from Steve Bannon for their usage. This is a, a this is a prosecution for what the feds say was a crime. Not to this is not a direct effort to compel him to give the committee information. He's been referred for criminal prosecution. Mark Meadows was referred, and we check um, daily, if not hourly, with the United States Attorney for the District of Columbia about the possibility of charges, and we don't have an update yet. Um, but it goes back to the issue you and I discussed earlier: um, criminal trials. They're hard to get on the calendar right now. Um, it, it's. They're having difficulty getting pre-trial detained January 6th accused rioters on the on the trial docket. It's certainly hard to get contempt of Congress cases on the trial docket with everything backlogged. Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's it's worthwhile to remind people that that even if they succeed legally with somebody like Steve Bannon, you, they are not going to be able to compel his testimony. They can just simply fine him and perhaps jail him. But if, if he doesn't want to talk, there's nothing they can do to actually make him talk. So speaking of other people talking to the committee, I know one of your colleagues at CBS also reported that Jeffrey Clark met with the committee, and he, of course, is the Department of Justice official who was most deeply involved uh, with the Trumpian attempt to get the Department of Justice involved in this uh, overturning of the election. Do we have any idea whether Jeffrey Clark is answering questions or whether he's pleading the fifth? We don't. We do know uh, from from my colleagues, the Jeffrey Clark, uh, after previous postponements and delays. Um, finally had some connection to the committee this week. But let me give you a parallel case. We know on Wednesday, Stuart Rhodes spoke with the January 6th committee. I'm told he spoke for six hours in an interview in which he frequently invoked the Fifth Amendment. So just because they're invoking their Fifth Amendment rights doesn't mean they aren't talking. Um, I asked his defense counsel, you know, what is Stuart Rhodes talking about if he's invoking the fifth? And first of all, his defense lawyer said he wouldn't talk about things that happened after the fall of 2020, um, which is kind of everything the January 6th committee is looking at. But this doesn't mean there aren't things they, they couldn't glean from him. Uh, according to his defense lawyer, Stuart Rhodes talked about the founding and the philosophy of the Oath Keepers, um, the composition or how he you know, founded this organization you can see threads there that might be very relevant for the January 6th committee. He talked about his upbringing, his military career, his law school work. Um, but he spoke for six hours, and, and the, the House January 6th committee saw fit to keep him there um, as he was talking. So when you hear that some of these people are invoking their Fifth Amendment rights, it doesn't mean this is a binary situation where they say everything or they say nothing. Mm -hmm. there, are, huh. there are areas in between. So let's take a slightly different tack on all of this. Uh, there have been reports uh, and confirmation from the Department of Justice that they're looking into those faked slash forged electoral vote uh, certificates. Uh, what can you tell me about that? Well, they've issued subpoenas for about a dozen people in some of these states, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia. And these, in some cases, are current 
Republican Party officials yes. or recent or former Republican Party officials. And you know, we sent out our request for comment and haven't gotten res- responses from those who've been subpoenaed. Um, not, not a terrible surprise there. Uh, but this is another frontier for a select committee, which has, if nothing else, done a remarkable job of communicating its drumbeat yeah. of work. It just always feels like there's momentum or forward movement with this committee. They're always peeling another layer off. Even before the, the, the prior layer has been satisfied, they're moving to the next layer. And I, I'll say that hmm. this is not the type of thing you see from congressional committees very often. A unified, meticulous, seemingly choreographed march. You know, congressional committee hearings, they could be a hot mess. I mean, you got two different parties warring. They're hometowning questions. They're, they're going off on tangents. This committee is different. It's obviously composed different. It has a different philosophy. But it moves what appears to be strategic steps and a unified message that's distinctive and perhaps the members would tell you it fits the moment yeah you get the feeling that they are connecting all of these dots i think what was the what were the most recent uh, subpoenas they put out was to, uh, to some of the folks in, in arizona uh, kelly ward some of the kelly other ward. conspiracy theorists so um, a lot of these names are very very familiar Okay, so this is, seem, may seem slightly to one side of all of this, but I know that you commented on Twitter about the civil suit uh, filed by retired Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinneman against Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani, yep. and, and others, alleging coordinated attacks that made it impossible for him to perform in any national security or foreign affairs role because he testified against the president. And he's suing them basically saying this was all unlawful intimidation and retaliation. So I'm I'm a big Alexander Vindman fan, um, but I'm not a lawyer. I can't evaluate how serious this this lawsuit is. But there are laws on the books that say that if, in fact, you retaliate against government officials for performing their legal duties, that that's problematic. So what, what is your take on on the Vindman lawsuit? In this moment, doesn't that seem like forever ago, the first impeachment trial? It seems like it was much so. farther in the past than it was. I know. But that said, you know, Vindman is still a stands out in my mind's eye from the hearings. They're in full dress uniform talking about the phone call. Yeah. And he's still the most prominent in my mind from what, what, feel, what feels like ancient history, but was not ancient history. So this is a civil lawsuit against, as you say, Don Jr., against Rudy Giuliani, a couple other Trump aides. You know, the, the lawsuit doesn't name Donald Trump, but it sure does make a series of accusations specifically about Donald Trump being part of, of this effort. And I got to tell you, though, Charlie, you can just add this to the stack of civil cases we now have to follow in the D.C. federal courthouse relevant to the Trump administration in January 6th. Benny Thompson filed a civil suit against Donald Trump uh, after January 6th. Eric Swalwell did. Hmm. Injured Capitol police officers filed a civil suit. Um, and, And then you've got the lawsuits going against the committee from figures who they've subpoenaed or, or there's a lot to track here. So I, I can't tell you the, the significance of the Vindman suit. I can tell you that in 73 pages, it's a pretty fiery civil complaint. Didn't read like the other things I usually read at a courthouse. No, it, it, it was very fiery and it does add to sort of the, the critical mass. I mean, do you, do you have like, I mean, Scott, do you have like this big wall? at home with all the like like strings and everything and the pictures to keep everything straight <laughs> because oh, like, like in the wire like, yeah, like the chalkboard thing well i was i was actually I thinking of of homeland right, where she right. had the, the wall but i mean you you have the ongoing uh, attorney general investigation in new york you have uh, the dc attorney general who is uh, pursuing things the you know manhattan 
uh, DA is looking at things allegedly. Uh, Fulton County DA. Uh, you have the January 6th. I mean, there's a lot going on here. And I wonder, I think it's very unpredictable how this is going to turn out, including just the process of discovery. I mean, so some of these lawsuits may not actually nail Donald Trump or his inner circle, but they are coming up with a lot of documentation. And discovery can be a very, very difficult situation for somebody who is, let's say, in a legally problematic situation and has a hard time with the truth. We're in the 14th month now of this U.S. Justice Department investigation of January 6th, and we think we've read most, if not all, of the tens of thousands of pages of court filings. We haven't even seen a cryptic, really subtle reference to an elected official in criminal activity on January 6th in the charging documents in the court filings from the U.S. Justice Department. So what it doesn't does that mean tell they you? don't have those cards. Yeah. They, they wouldn't show them right now necessarily if they had them. I just want to make sure it's clear, because people ask me this a lot, what have you seen you know, that, that ties you know, an elected official to criminal activity January 6th from the feds? And nothing from the Justice Department nothing. 14 months in, but to a degree, they're just getting started, so we don't know what we don't know coming down the road. Now, the House January 6th committee, that's a more fascinating scope they have. It's not just the criminal activity on site at the Capitol January 6th. It's kind of everything. And they've got to sponge up everything and they've got to decipher everything. And so to a degree, my, my attention is much more divided than I thought it would be between the criminal activity and what the House committee is doing, because the House committee has a seemingly infinite bandwidth for where it's looking, whereas the Justice Department still seems at least publicly facing narrowly focused on these 730 and counting criminal defendants. So on Saturday night, in addition to dangling the pardons, Trump did something else. He he raised the possibility of massive protests, possible unrest if the racist prosecutors uh, go after him in some unfair way. And we, we talked about this the other day on the podcast. I thought it was very interesting that he he's referring to this as racist uh, which appears to me to be kind of an unsettled reference to the fact that the the DA in Fulton County, the attorney general in New York, and the chairman of the January 6th committee are all African-Americans. Uh, but give me your thoughts on that. Uh, basically saying, look, if, if, you know, I'm, I'm raising, the, op- I'm raising the, the price tag uh, for you guys. If you charge me with anything, I'm going to call uh, MAGA World out in the street again. It caught my attention <laughs> when he said it Saturday night. I, in a long stem winder of a speech, those were the, one of the two things I, I focused on: that statement and the pardons. And those were the two things that jumped out yeah. at me. So, I, but, do, but does that work? Will will that get the attention of the DA or the members of the grand jury or the attorney general? Uh, are they going to go? I, I, I'm going to turn it back uh, on you. Okay. Does that does that politically work? And what's the political calculus there for him saying that? Well, I I just think it's his playbook, and I I think it's it's the playing the the victim card. They're out to get me. I am the martyr. They may be coming for me, but they're really coming for you, which has been very, very central to his political appeal. But this is an interesting question. Somebody asked me, you know, what the reaction to a lot of this was. And I, I told him, I'm not totally sure. I do sense a frustration among Republicans who think that they're doing pretty well, that they have some issues. They're going to win this year except that here's Donald Trump who keeps insisting that the race be about himself, the airing of his own grievances, that he will not move on from 2020. And I sense that there's a little bit of anxiety about how far is he going to push this? What is he going to make us say? What is he going to make us do? We think we're in a good position unless Donald Trump, you know, becomes the 
the ghost at the party who says, whatever you want, you want to talk about all this other stuff, inflation, but I want to talk about bamboo ballots in, in, sure. in Maricopa County or something. Well, like as, as I walk through the Capitol uh, each day, I, I see, hear, and speak with Republicans who think they're holding a pretty winning hand for November. Yeah. Now, they, they got a straight mm-hmm. flush in their minds, and it, it feels yeah. like what your question raises the prospect that Donald Trump's throwing wild cards into the game and right. got a straight flush. We don't need to make threes and fours wild. Um, so I, I think I think that's spot on, your, your analysis of there's this maybe some unsettling political calculus uh, for other Republicans from what he's doing. But the former president today issued two different statements talking about the January 6th committee. In one of them, he said, people who arrested for January 6th were, quote, those protesting the result of the election and calls the election the crime of the century. Yeah. So he's, re- he's kind of digging in on that. And I don't know how it complicates things for the local or federal prosecutors, but I do know it makes the political fortunes in the party more complicated to decipher. So you talk to these guys. I, I, I heard, with the exception of people like you know, Lindsey Graham, how weird is that? Uh, very little reaction to the president's uh, comments. I mean, there were some people on the Sunday morning shows who said, yeah, that's totally inappropriate, but he, not even Susan Collins would say that uh, this was disqualifying. So, I mean, did they just keep their heads down and kind of, you know, pretend they don't hear it, that it's going to pass over them? What, what is their, how do they deal with questions about this? Well, I think you described it well, and we're going to keep asking those questions through the week because uh, in, in my mind, that statement Saturday night was um, important enough to follow on. Um, because it kind of, it, it so speaks to, to this moment, but it also really can impact the fabric of these criminal cases in ways we just described. So we'll keep asking the question, but I'll go back to it. I, my sense from the Republicans with whom I speak each day is they believe they're holding a winning hand yeah. for November. It is not time to mess with the cards. Um, just see it through. And I mean, it's getting close, man. We're almost at primary season. Yeah, I know. And, and this, right is com- this complicates things in primaries, too, as you know. Yeah. So you are the congressional correspondent for CBS. You're watching what's what's going on there, including the uh, parent collapse of uh, Build Back Better. While you're doing all this other stuff, there's a Supreme Court nomination coming up. And at least for the moment, the Democrat Senate majority is temporarily gone, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you have a Democratic senator who suffered a stroke this week. They don't have a working or functional majority at this moment, and it's clear they won't have it for weeks This uh, is Senator Lujan recovers. But you know, it, it actually raises a, a, a different, if you look at it through a different prism, a different question is raised. You're going to have a Supreme Court nominee coming through this building, conceivably, here at the Capitol in a few weeks to meet with senators. Do you still do that? I mean, do you still have these meetings in person? In the, This place is teeming with COVID. And you've yeah. got a whole bunch of people here who still don't wear masks. You have a whole bunch of people here who are militant about wearing masks. So there's this dividing line that's going to form on this nomination over any number of things politically. But it's going to start with how to even function these meetings. Because I spoke with Senator Dick Durbin, chairman of the Senate Judiciary, who said we haven't decided whether to do in-person meetings or have any of this virtual. But he says there'd be some value to, to virtual, but we're all used to it and maybe could speed things up. Then I spoke to Ted Cruz who said it would be ridiculous not to have in-person meetings and that he would deem any effort to have virtual meetings with a Supreme Court nominee as hiding the nominee. Huh, so I, we're going to have a political fight yeah. over just the meeting. Oh, just over that. You know, I, Where I is this I, headed? I'd figure that uh, the Ted would just want to do a Zoom call from, uh, from Cancun. 
But I, I again, you're you're closer to this. I, I the the fifty fifty split means that the Democratic majority is so fragile. It is so tenuous. There was some discussion early on, like, why would they want to rush this through the nomination? Well, it's because at any given moment, they could lose their nomination. And then you have one of the younger members of the Senate, Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico, who's a young guy, suffers a stroke. You know, you you made this point that they don't have a functioning majority. So you know, unlike in the House, the senators are not allowed to vote by proxy. So there are only 49 members of the Democratic caucus, So that, which means the Democrats right now won't be able to do anything of significance without help from Republicans. And that includes legislation, but also confirming yeah. a new Supreme Court justice. And I don't know whether you want to weigh in on this, but this is, a, again, a reminder why it was perhaps not a great idea to spend so much emotional en- energy demonizing Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, because without each and every one of them, there's no majority. They don't run anything. Kind of underscores why yeah. it's significant that nobody catch COVID over the next few weeks and months either. Although so far at the Capitol, none of the breakthrough cases has been particularly serious, and we all hope that continues. Yeah, um, yeah. You, the importance, the availability of every single member of the Senate is critical. Every single member, um, and that that cuts both ways. But also, it kind of it kind of leads us into a discussion about the proxy voting system. Yeah, because Republicans want that gone. They have told me in so many words that when if they take over, if they take over, they will make sure proxy voting is a thing of the past. They believe members of Congress should be here in person, and you know these narrowed margins. You know, proxy votes are pretty critical in on House side matters. You know, who, if you aren't able to vote by proxy and you can't show up in Washington D.C. because of quarantines or exposure. You know, do you do you then stall out the House too? There's no proxy voting system in the Senate, but the availability of everybody is critical mass, and that makes this a sensitive moment. So th- this was right when I was reading to you from from the Atlantic that that in the Senate there is no proxy vote. You have to show up physically in the Senate. If you have a member of the Senate who is indisposed or in the hospital and cannot come to the Senate, that person does not get to vote. I remember, it's, it's some years ago now, Charlie, I remember a very ambitious effort to bring former Senator Byrd here when his oh, health yeah. was ailing for a vote. And the photo op was, 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 it still sticks out in my mind of, he was in a bad spot. They brought him here, he got himself here, and he probably insisted on coming here to be a pivotal vote on a pivotal matter. There is no remote voting system in the Senate, and that's, that's real relevant right now, isn't it? With this well, particular business before the Senate, it's also relevant when you th- you think about the gerontocracy running Washington D.C. You know the yep. fact that that all of this, all of these things, rest on really old people. I'm, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be morbid here or or unfair, but I, I think we learned some of the consequences with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, when the fate of the country rests on people of questionable health who are in their 80s. There are a lot of unknown unknowns. I mean, Dianne Feinstein, Patrick Leahy, uh, just run through the list of, of folks out there. Chuck Grassley. This is all a very fragile thing. And sometimes, you know, I think some of the political punditry, uh, the punditocracy and the people on the outside, the special interests, kind of forget that. <laughs> it's, it's also, you know, it's not inconsequential what the succession plans are in certain states. Yeah. You know, people are lying if they say they don't talk about that around here. That are you from a state where a governor of the opposite party would name your successor? Right. That was the first thing I looked at. Lujan, there's a Democratic uh, governor. But in Vermont, there's a Republican governor, right? Yes. In, in, in Vermont, it would be a, a, the governor is the opposite party of the sitting president and of uh, both mm-hmm. senators. So that's a dynamic people are cognizant of. And 
it's just going to be really relevant for the rest of this Congress, and not just on matters at the Supreme Court, but on other matters where even that 60th vote can be critical. Okay, so I don't know whether you've weighed in on this or whether you have an opinion about it, um, because we have something in the in in the bulwark by Tim Miller about this CNN report about you know the Chuck Schumer and the Build Back Better deal that he actually signed this secret deal with Joe Manchin and Joe Manchin committed to a certain amount of money, and we now find out that Schumer kept it secret from both Nancy Pelosi and from Biden, despite all of the months of work and drama on all of this. And there are a lot of folks who are thinking this is just an incredible act of political malpractice. Do you give any insight? Why would Chuck Schumer have this piece of paper, this deal with Joe Manchin and not tell Biden or Pelosi about it? I get maybe Pelosi, but Biden? So I don't have reporting on that, yeah. but here's what I can tell you has fascinated me since beginning as congressional correspondent at CBS News. There is always a stakeout outside Joe Manchin's office. And <laughs> I, I mean, really? there's, a, there's an organized... Uh-huh. focused, stakeout, and he engages every time. Um, I, it's somebody who watched the Capitol from a, a bit more of a distance over the last year before coming here. I, I didn't see that you know, at a retail level every day like I do now. Really is fascinating. The, uh, not only the impact he, he engages, he, 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 ans- he answers questions. He talks to people. He tells yeah. people what yes. he's actually thinking. So it's not a That's mystery. A, right? a distinctive okay. platform, Charlie. Yeah. I mean, he yeah. has he has the nation's cameras outside his office at a moment's notice. That's that's <laughs> to a degree that's presidential. I mean, you you have the ability to speak to America whenever you feel like it. I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but he has quite a platform, and so I, I now understand why there's such a focus here. Because not only is now does he have is he a pivotal voter, but he's one who's willing to use his platform and talk. Wow. Scott McFarland, uh, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Again, congratulations on your new job. And thanks for coming back on the podcast. Let's do it again, Charlie. We will. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. and We'll do this all over again. <laughs>